This episode of Making a Monster is brought to you by The Book of Extinction, extinct animals resurrected for the world's greatest role-playing game. I wish Lucas had never shared this with me because <laughs> I, I, now I can't be surprised with it and it's so sad. I believe in the poetry of a nat one just as much as I believe in the artistry of a nat 20. You guys are doing specific monsters from older... It's not specific monsters, it's, uh, it's <laughs> cheats. It is, it oh, is oh different... yeah, cheeses, cheeses, cheeses. <laughs> I don't know if that's what you call it. Call uh, it it's going to be what I call it now. <laughs> it's way better. Because a lot of the ways in which the game has created its own lore, its own D&D cryptids, started back in 3rd edition and 3.5. And 5th edition stands at the top of this teetering tower of nonsense that is 50 years old and has given rise to a, a huge variety of things that are just in the game now and have names and wander about the world of D&D in the same way that wandering monsters roam around dungeons. So That peasant railgun. Something like the Quantum Ogre. I loathe the Arrow of Destruction. The False Hydra. Uh, wireless Troll. Larry the Kung <laughs> Fu Kraken. I hate this one so, so much. <laughs> Welcome to Making a Monster, the bite-sized podcast where we look at the monsters in Dungeons & Dragons and other tabletop RPGs and discover how they work, why they work, and what they mean. For these episodes, I've assembled a crack team of D&D podcasters from all over the world to track down monsters born of the system itself. I'm Jeremy Vine. I'm a professional dungeon master. My name is Jared Jehoda, and you can find me on any podcast platform under Mid-Level Adventurers. I'm Dan Alone, the host, producer, editor of Thinking Critically, a D&D discussion of podcasts. Hello, I'm Rebecca. And I'm Stephen. And we are from a House Civis Broadcasting, Eberron, a Chronicle of Echoes podcast. So let's talk cheese. Uh, <laughs> this text boxer isn't so much an exploit as, as a homebrew. Okay. But it's on the list because of how resilient this idea has become. Near as I can tell... This idea first appeared in September of 2014, and somehow in that seven years, it has accomplished, I think, maybe the same amount of mythologizing as some of the things like the Peasant Railgun. This is the False Hydra. Mm -hmm. This is one of those instances in which I kind of wish I was making a video podcast, because when I say that, everyone's face changes, mm -hmm. and it's never been the same twice. <laughs> <laughs> If you've heard of this, where was the first time you heard about it? This is, every, again, yeah, lucky for you, because this is very pertinent in that um, <laughs> I, <laughs> someone who I used to DM for a little little short campaign a little while ago, they recently, like, hey, can I get your advice? I'm thinking of running this. And it happened to be a false hydra. And, and, and we're talking like three months ago, they messaged me this. <laughs> and I saw them mention false hydra, and immediately I thought, oh, cool. Is that going to be like a water dwelling snake thing but maybe it only has like two heads which is why it's a false hydra i could not have been <laughs> more incredibly wrong <laughs> in that interpretation of that definition it looks awful it looks so awful yeah arnold has chosen a variety of horrifying images from around the internet some of them i think are involved in an old creepypasta about a zelda game cartridge um, no, no, no. That is a monster from Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Oh, okay. Uh, you fight it twice. Once as an adult, once as a kid, I think. Woof. But yeah. 
Yeah, man, I I played Ocarina of Time and I don't remember, so it's I'm kind of freaking out. It's in the bottom right? of the well. It's, <laughs> it's the creature you fight in the bottom of the well. I'm sorry, I I know that game backwards and forwards. <laughs> I've encountered the blog post. Well, actually, a separate blog post before about the idea of a false hydra, because my interpretation of the false hydra is that it kind of takes your recollection of the hydra itself. That when you are devoured by this hydra, your the memory of you is erased from reality that to everyone who knew you, you just no longer exist. And so I read it all. And so clearly you were very on the money because it's still very much in vogue and people are still very much trying to incorporate it. Broadly, it is this creature that calls upon a number of tropes that we've seen in, in many popular culture. I think the, the silence in Doctor Who being a very obvious correlation where it fandangles with people's memory essentially and perception of reality so that it is this all-pervasive clearly not benign creature this not benign force that manipulates people's memories and perception of reality so that they never notice it they never see it's there or the effects that it has on their world such as killing people they will cease to remember those people and go on as as normal as to secure its safety and and growth the false hydra always felt like the silence from doctor who is that was what the premise was it's something that you look and you acknowledge is there and then you can roll to forget it and that is absolutely horrifying that you could know this thing is there outside of character and be able to do nothing with that yeah it was a mental mind shenanigan crazy (laughs) thing like it was like whoa this is blowing your mind and i don't know which came first chicken or the egg because i just don't know but uh first appearance 2011 the impossible astronaut ah so maybe then it was inspired by or maybe they just came up with the idea separately but yeah sort of case of convergent evolution which it's just a great idea having this monster that is really more about the psychological terror of it than anything else it's subconscious fear it is that like it's almost horror-esque really as opposed to like a fantasy problem and it just slowly takes over a town by just removing people one by one by one and it's it is such a horrifying idea and it's not often that you get to see dm cheese where they get to fudge the rules and make things a little more exciting and fun for them and it's disturbing and upsetting and i i can't get enough of it i cannot get enough of it i just want to play i i mean i don't want to play in a game with it because if i play in a game with it now i'll know what's there and it takes away all the fun i wish lucas had never shared this with me because (laughs) i I, now i can't be surprised with it and it's so sad i've heard that this is one of those things that is extremely difficult to pull off if you had to run a false hydra do you think you'd try and do it? And if so, how would you set this up? Well, if any of my players are listening, no, I would <laughs> never try to do that, ever. <laughs> but if I was going to try to do it, <laughs> they wouldn't know. <laughs> uh, no, I, I would probably take, I probably wouldn't do the whole, like, it rose out of the ground through grubs and whatever. I would probably be a little more wacky with it, because I kind of like that. Still dangerous and crazy, but a little more wacky. So I would have, I think, a uh, a town where people are happy all the time. 
There's no like existential dread and there's always new housing opening up. Um, so they're always like, Hey, <laughs> we just have this new house that just opened up over here. Like you should check that out. And so they constantly are getting new people in the town because it's a paradise. Nobody ever has any problems, which automatically in my book makes it suspicious as hell. Oh yeah. <laughs> there's no problems because any like bandits or anything that come along immediately succumb to the Hydra because the Hydra keeps like a core number of town people around to lure in new people at all times. So I would put it more in like a opportunistic parasite as opposed to just like, oh, I'm going to eat everything. <laughs> um, because like it is doing some good. It's taking out baddies and protecting these core people, but everyone else is just food for it. Wow. Yeah, I love that because that's it's not then it's not quite cut and dried as uh, it's only a matter I of time love before you're eating in my game. <laughs> I'm all about it. I always give my bad guy a good reason for being a bad guy. So I've never encountered this before. I feel yep. that this is something that is incredibly difficult to achieve as a dungeon master to have that level of knowledge of like that level of planning as well of yes these people no longer exist and if a character is taken by it's like well how do you how do you do that it's that complete buy-in of the world that is very difficult to achieve in my opinion i love the idea around it now i'm not sure if this is the the blog post that you sent the way i encountered it was a Somebody was saying that they decided to use the false hydra in a game and that they just had the party sitting around and noticed some bloodstains. And it was like, that's weird, but all right. And eventually they found the false hydra and they killed them. And um, they went back to town and were given a portrait that had been painted by um, like an actual portrait. And it actually had a character, a member of the party who they'd never met. And the idea was that at some point this character had gone on watch and been eaten by the Hydra. And the fact that the character had never had a player, never existed at all, they just completely sewn it in that, wow, you've lost this party member that you now never remember. That's amazing. And that's, that's how I encountered the false Hydra. I just thought, <laughs> this is genius. If you can pull that off, your players will remember that forever. <laughs> absolutely forever and the certainly the blog post i've um that that i've seen overall is like this horror <laughs> it's designing a horror creature um that idea that once it kills you no one remembers you it's like that's something that just hits a little bit of a trigger in my mind and it's going no i don't like that at all that's a script <laughs> that uh, that terrifies me do you think you could pull it off <laughs> like running a false hydra for your players i guess uh, the definite okay the, the definition of whether i could pull it on off or not i would leave to my players <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, however um i would say i would like to think so if only for the fact of i would over plan and make sure and spend all way too long on things that won't get used or won't even get <laughs> to see the light of day so that it would just be in a complete fail safe system ecology where <laughs> there'd, there'd always be something exciting to do but the, the fact of the matter is basically no one including myself has that 
freedom has that length of time available to them to, to really <laughs> <laughs> make it work maybe i'm completely a naysayer and pessimistic because clearly it's it's popular and people do it well i think you're right in that it works a lot better on paper than it does in practice because of the people i've asked about this mm-hmm. most have not been confident that uh they would want to make the attempt or that they could provide a satisfying experience if they did mm-hmm. or that it would be worth it in the end yeah because <laughs> there's so much going on here mm-hmm. it's a loaded question could you do this which is kind of why i ask it <laughs> yeah, yeah um, i mean I, I would agree with them i hate being like with experience or with or with knowledge but I can't have done this podcast for however many years and not picked up some, some you know, peripheral peripheral experience. So, it, absolutely, this and many other things, I'm sure, go you know seem rad on at first glance to to maybe a less experienced DM now. But I'm just perhaps more cognizant of various pitfalls having fallen in them myself. So yeah, to less experienced DM seeing something like the Force Hydra, and that's oh that'll be really cool. It'll be really atmospheric, and I can have the the barman have a picture of his family behind the bar, but he doesn't know who the woman or the child are. He just thinks it's a selfie, and then that the players ask the question like, "What happened to the woman and the child in the photo?" And he goes, "There aren't a woman and a child in the photo." That'd be fun and exciting. Yeah, sure, that is. But then, but then what? You know what what? It, how how do we really get something out of that and and you can only do that as i said <laughs> a couple of times before the players just go everyone here is crazy and that's that's it that's the story and <laughs> we, we move on out of this weird town full of the people who don't know who can't understand what a photo is and <laughs> then then everybody gets frustrated which is the worst yeah case. that's like that's the fail state the fail state is everybody including the dm is just like we don't know what's going on i don't know how to make other people know what's going on there. <laughs> yeah yeah because running a mystery in D is very difficult yes running a mystery where the solution to the mystery is actively erasing the clues mm-hmm. um also really difficult so mm-hmm. yep there's miles of depth on this one yeah yeah so. for sure for sure um you, you just you you'd need to be a mystery novelist to, to, <laughs> to like <laughs> in a sense because it has to be a lot of it has to be scripted to a certain extent you're, you're you're almost pushing that point of more scripted gameplay rather than free form i like the idea behind it and it would be really fun to do a one shot involving it but i can't imagine like just the, the the mental logistics that go into thinking like, well, okay, now there's a monster you have to fight that you don't know is there. What do you do? What what do you even do in that scenario? Yeah. Yeah, because you're asking for a lot from your players not to metagame if you're using it. Oh, no. I mean, metagame at that point in time, please. Because yeah. the only way you're going to get out of that is by thinking outside of the box. Yeah. Because everything straightforward, you, you would have assumed, yeah, has been tried time and time again. You have to have to come up with something. I, I mean, oh God, no. no. Yeah, and, and I then think... I, I don't, I don't like it. I, I don't have <laughs> what to say on it. <laughs> uh, 
This episode of Making a Monster is brought to you by The Book of Extinction, a bestiary of extinct animals resurrected for the world's greatest role-playing game. Inside are the stranger-than-fiction true stories of animals now completely gone from the world, alongside game statistics as fantasy monsters. The first three of those monsters are available now. You can pay what you want for them, and every penny will support endangered species and habitat preservation through the Center for Biological Diversity. Learn more at scintilla.studio slash extinction. That's S-C-I-N-T-I-L-L-A dot studio slash extinction. So much of what's happening in the game is being influenced by what's happening at the table. Uh, and to that point, there's there's some of this cheese that's influenced by what's happening within the game system itself, which leads me to Larry the Kung Fu Kraken. Oh, man. Larry the <laughs> Kung Fu Kraken. I hate this one so, so much. <laughs> like, uh, it makes sense, but it I, I hate it. I hate it so much. Yeah, so this relies on a, a discussion of fumble mechanics or or critical fails. So with 5e, I mean, there's not a lot of crit fail rules. A lot of that's going to be on the DM. You critically fail and, I mean, you miss real bad. There might be a few suggestions in the DM's guide, but for the most part, nothing really bad happens if you critically fail on a hit or a skill check or anything like that. But with Pathfinder and 3-5, there were very hard rules as to what could happen when you critically fail. And so I I think I'm going to just come to the through line here. I think that it it goes back to the adversarial Adversarial. aspects of 3-5 and Pathfinder (laughs) in particular, because you want to be able to punish your players occasionally, and you don't really get to do that. And by having them roll a one, you're saying, well, now you've messed up and I get to do something to you. Yeah. Monster of the Week calls it taking a hard move. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I think that 5e has made a good decision getting away from that. I think that you can fail and still have bad things happen. And I think taking a hard move is a way that it can be done without it being as punishing as it was. But even like the the cards for Pathfinder, they had the crit fail cards. I don't know if those were official or they were. They were, were they officially. Official? Yeah, uh, by, yeah, they. Uh, yeah, what's on they, a crit? What's on a crit fail card? So <sighs> we had the critical success cards, which were always like, "Oh, you're doing so good," and then crit fails, like, "Oh, okay, you you've dropped your weapon and you've cut off your toe, and now you're going to have problems with balance for the rest of the game." Yeah, or you accidentally kicked up some dust and you're blinded for the next minute. Some of them got like bad enough that it was like you fall on your sword. Yeah, so you are now dying, and that's kind of what the critical fail was. That sometimes when you roll the one, you would have a separate table something bad, even worse has happened to you and you'd have to roll on that. And it might be you just drop your weapon. It might be that you attack your ally next to you instead. It might be that you stab yourself. It might, there's a whole range of things that would could occur. Back in the day, we did like one, you rolled a one. And so for, for 20s, you, you had to roll a d20. And if you got a 20, you had you to had roll to, to confirm yep. and you had to beat the AC. Now, if you rolled a second 20, so two 20s in a row, we would go into like, oh man, you're doing exceedingly well. Try it again. You get three 20s in a row, you insta-kill something. Once I actually got three 20s in a row, so I insta-killed something. Oh my gosh. It was, I don't even know what the odds were, but it was crazy. <laughs> one in like 1600 chance. I, yeah. I don't know. Something like that.
we can live in that moment if you want. You can tell me that story. <laughs> I mean, it was crazy. I was playing a ranger and I was having a hard go at it because it was this monster creature and I didn't, I think it was a plant and I didn't have any magical weapons and it was like resistant to all my attacks. But then I just happened to roll three twenty. I rolled a 20 and he was like, okay, confirm it. And I was like, okay, I, I got the crit. He was like, just go for it. <laughs> and I rolled a third 20, couldn't believe it. And somehow with my non-magical attacks, I killed a thing that was resistant to non-magical damage because I rolled three 20s in a row. The odds were insane. Somehow I did it. And after the game, he realized that, well, plant creatures are actually immune to critical hits. But I was like, don't rob this from me. <laughs> no, this happened. <laughs> Man, three and a half was wild. Oh, yeah. What was, what was even going on back then? Yeah. I didn't have a single character that lasted more than like five sessions in 3.5. Wow. I've had one character last three years. I am amazed and awed by your skill. <laughs> No, it has nothing to do with it. I, I think it's more 5e's fault. This actually kind of brings me back around because one of the things that people have told me about older editions is that, is that there was a much more adversarial relationship between the DM and the players. Yes. Like you, like this world is going to kill you and I'm the guy who's going to do it. And it's your job to figure out how to survive. Yes, very much so. Those first... I mean, those first sessions until that character died in my three edition game, it was always like everything was trying to kill our characters. It wasn't about like building up this heroic adventure journey. It was about how can I kill you? Hmm. My 3.5 adventures were similar, but less so that. I think that's just because the DM was a nicer human being. <laughs> and certainly in fourth edition, when I started DMing and I was really bad at it, I took that mindset because that's the only one I knew. And then I was talking to him and I was like, I'm not having as fun this way. I'm just going to make it be more of like, I'm a neutral party and you'll have to fight things. And if you die, you die. And I'm not going to get involved in it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, course, yeah. Let me circle back to critical success or critical fails. Yes. What is the thought experiment of the Kung Fu Kraken? So it's this idea that a Kraken who is trained in martial arts can <laughs> attack essentially 18 times on a turn, right? Which means sure, that... Sure, we're, we're counting, what, eight? We're counting eight limbs and then a few extra? Yeah, so like it's like eight limbs and multi-attack, so that's two <laughs> attacks per limb. And I think there's... <laughs> uh, I forget what they were called, but they're the equivalent of bonus action, fury of blow attack kind of deal. There's a whole range of things. It could have tentacles, it could have massive teeth, <laughs> it could have pseudopods, but it gets a lot of attacks is the point yeah a lot of attacks in a turn <laughs> and statistically if you roll a d20 that many times there's a certain number of times that's going to come up as a one which is a f critical failure and your increased likelihood therefore means that you are weaker at fighting and more likely to succumb to a failure table and kill yourself because <laughs> that was one of the options on these failure tables oof like I have seen failure tables that are like you decapitate yourself, you chop off your arm. And I'm like, whoa, dude, <laughs> I don't know how that's possible. <laughs> so you roll. But that being said, I do support the idea of crit fails. Like I like that idea. Uh, you know, in 3.5, like critical failures were definitely a thing. And so were critical successes. 
in 5e they've kind of dropped the critical fail part and just kept the success part but i still use critical fail but i'm a lot nicer with my critical fails <laughs> and essentially what i do is i do it by level if you are levels one through five someone is going to take 1d4 damage okay yeah so enough to kind of be annoying but generally not enough to kill you yeah unless you're a wizard and rolled a two on your... <laughs> <laughs> but um and then it increases, so like 6 through 10 is a D6, a D8 for 11 through 15, and 16 through 20 is a D10. But it's just one die of damage. Right. But what I add to it is ah. a condition effect. So hmm. like you could overextend, and maybe you uh, overextend by your opponent's sword, and you get cut for two points of damage, but then you fall prone. Yeah, bad news. And like that ends your turn or, you know, if there's like three potential people who could suffer, like if you're an archer and you roll a nat one, it could fling back on you. It could hit the fighter next to the enemy or it could hit the rogue next to the enemy. So all three of the players roll a d20 into it's a straight luck roll. Whoever gets the lowest gets the ping. <laughs> and then, you know, that can be like, hey, watch where you're shooting. And that's yeah. always fun. <laughs> So I believe in the poetry of a nat one just as much as I believe in the artistry of a nat 20. But mm. I don't want to be a dick about it. <laughs> I just want to be annoying about it. <laughs> um, which is a long round of saying, I like the idea of these failure tables, but I think in previous editions, they were too aggressive. Do you critical fail on skill checks? Um, so no, so not in, not, okay, let me, let me define that for you. Not if they roll a one, but if they still fail badly, sure. which could be on a two, or it could just be the DC was so high that the chances of failure are high and failing catastrophically as high, you know, it, it, it's going to happen. And it's probably never as hard or as harsh. There's no punitive. The The most punishment it will get is you're trying to run, leap, or dive across a skill check. For example, a physical activity, you fall prone. It's probably as hard, you know, you fall on your ass because it's kind of half role play. Ha ha ha, look at the buffoon, but also half. Yes, you're going to have to spend five foot of movement, but if we're not in combat, that's not really an issue. So no one really minds. Um and then for social encounters it's i always tend to run um you know n nothing's binary in my game so a critical fail quote unquote isn't going to just immediately turn anyone to be like oh now i want to punch you in the face because humans don't really operate like that it takes quite a lot for to get me to want to punch somebody in the face like we're talking <laughs> like quite egregious things here not just somebody asking for more money off an item and them doing it in an awkward way doesn't immediately make me hate that person. So in this, and that's how I try and run my NPCs. So, it, you know, a critical fail, just be like, Do you know what? Just leave my store, please, because you're wasting my time and not. Whoops, you throw the coin because you fell over and you throw it in the merchant's face. And now he, the guards want you is not, to me, is not. <laughs> it just doesn't really make sense. <laughs> sure. I, I, I very cool. much subscribe to that train of thought that's like when people say they try and persuade the king give me your crown so i can be king 
and you can make them roll uh, because although it's impossible and you shouldn't really get players to roll for things that are impossible, the outcome is very variable. So a 20 plus would be like, ha ha, you can be my court jester because what a funny joke you just said and I'm not going to throw you in prison whereas <laughs> you, know, D- you don't hit DC5 which typically one tends to not hit uh (laughs) then he's like you've insulted me and you're going in prison for the night uh so that that sliding scale which again is kind of in in independent of a one or not i never really used them i felt that that was something that would would take away the fun um, and critical hits, uh, same sort of thing. It, I tend to use those more because it's such a powerful hit. I feel that they balance themselves pretty well because if you can do a critical hit, then the monsters can too. And that's usually why I didn't do it because if they can have a critical fail, then the monsters can too. And I don't want my <laughs> monsters attacking each other. I want them to continue to attack the, um, the party. Uh, but that really is kind of boiling down what the critical fail was, that you had a certain percentage of not only did you not succeed, but something even worse has happened to you. Uh, and there's also the um, the straw dummy test, which is also, again, for the critical hit. Like, if you've got someone just attacking something that can't fight back, what are the chances of you rolling so poorly that you actually injure yourself with a a creature that's not attacking you at all yeah so eventually if you are rolling enough dice and if those dice can critically fail you there's a non-zero chance and a gradually escalating chance Mm. that a straw dummy itself is going to cause you grievous bodily harm Mm. (laughs) through no fault of its own (laughs) i do love these ideas as myths in game where you might have had stories about someone who's just so bad at being a warrior, so bad at being a guard that the straw dummy defeated them because they just went at it and they just roll that poorly. That yeah, the the dummy has actually caused mortal wounds to them um, over over their their little training <laughs> session. But it doesn't actually happen to characters. I feel because these are the thought experiments of if we extend the dice over a certain period it is theoretically possible that these things could occur but in practice they are very unlikely to occur i mean again i do not know probability very well i'm not a game designer (laughs) but i feel it is a thought experiment that's useful when you are looking at something like a critical failure table um, or a critical hit table for for that matter because that is kind of just the same thing but reversed but it's a lot more (laughs) dangerous i feel a critical hit table is a lot more celebratory that people are a lot more interested in in seeing a critical hit than a critical failure thanks for listening to making a monster if this episode has entertained or enlightened you in any way please share it with the people who play D with you your recommendation will go a long way to helping people trust me with their time and attention and it's a real gift to me and the creators i feature You can also leave me a like or a five-star review on Spotify, iTunes, or your podcast player of choice. It's a small thing, but it really does help new listeners discover the show. If you really like what I'm doing, you can support me through the Book of Extinction, a project I'm creating with Mage Hand Press that enables D&D players to make a real difference in the climate crisis and rapidly accelerating mass extinction by telling the stories of the animals that we have already lost. 
There are already five episodes of Making a Monster about the creatures in that book, so set this podcast feed to newest first and take a journey with me into a world wilder and more fascinating than you probably thought it could be. Special thanks to my collaborators on these Exploit Monsters episodes. I'm Jeremy Vine. I'm a professional dungeon master. You can find me on social media on Twitter at Talamin, T-A-L-U-M-I-N, or you can listen to my podcasts. Tell me about your D&D character, which is on SoundCloud, or D&D and TV, which is on Podbean. My name is Jared Jehoda, and you can find me on any podcast platform under Mid-Level Adventurers. I'm one half of the creative team. Matt is the other half. Or you can catch Matt and I on Newly Forged, which is our Twitch stream D&D game. Uh, it's a homebrew game set in a post-apocalyptic magical world. And uh, you can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, at MidLVLAdventure to keep updated. And we've recently started releasing our podcast episodes on YouTube as well. I'm Dan Lowe, the host, producer, editor of Thinking Critically, a D&D discussion podcast where we take a single word or topic and discuss what it means in the D&D and wider TTRPG framework. That has been going on now for almost 65 episodes and a year and a bit. Weekly drops everything from your esoteric left field weird things that you would never attribute to D&D all the way to encounters and experience and much more obvious topics including soft skills such as friendship and social and meta things such as podcasts which was a weird self <laughs> navel, navel gazing one to record <laughs> hello I'm Rebecca and I'm Stephen and we are from a house civis broadcasting Eberron, a Chronicle of Echoes podcast. It's a very different kind of podcast. We're a little bit scripted, a little bit improv, and a whole lot of fun. So we hope that you'll stop in and check us out and find out what it's like when D&D meets radio. <laughs>